uh, what we hope will be the first martial arts studies conference and to Cardiff University. So the work of our um, first keynote uh, has, is someone who um, I think is, was certainly um, hugely influential on me. I think it may actually have been the first time that I really thought I'd struck gold. You know, when you're, you're searching through journals and you do online searches through database, I think the first article that I encountered was a very short article by Professor Stephen Chan. And it was really short, and I really wanted it to have been longer. And I still kind of want it to be, to be longer. But I, I still read and reread the article, and I use it in, in teaching various modules. Um, and I think I've quoted from it, or at least referred to it, in almost every significant thing that I've ever said. I, I certainly there, when I think about Asian martial arts, um, whether I quote from, from it or not. So when I thought about having this conference, and thought about who to invite as a keynote, um, Professor Chan was the first choice. So um, if you know his writing, you'll understand why. And if you don't know his writing, one look at his CV will make your jaw drop, probably literally, when you look at this guy's CV. Scholarship, publications, international politics, international diplomacy, an OBE, a fifth Dan, a ninth Dan, a life of studying martial arts, of teaching martial arts, always for free, in poor communities, dispossessed communities in Africa, for reasons that can be construed as, as a strategies of intervention, but that spring from his basic human generosity. Professor Stephen Chan was my obvious first choice. It was a thrill when he accepted my invitation, and it's been a delight to communicate with him throughout the process of organising this conference. He's just such an incredibly nice guy, and this comes across in all of his communications, from his emails, to his academic writings, to his appearances on the television. And I want to tell you one little anecdote. I was once looking forward to appearing in a BBC documentary about the history of martial arts in the UK. So when the programme was on television, many years after the bloody thing was made, I gathered all of my family round me, we all sat down to watch my 15 minutes of fame. And in the end, I did pop up in the programme, but it wasn't 15 minutes of fame, it was more like three and a half minutes of fame for me. Um, which was all right, quite right. And so did Professor Chan. Afterwards, and this is absolutely true, when I turned to my family looking for congratulations and compliments, <laughs> all that they could seem to do was rave about how good that Stephen Chan fellow was, <laughs> and how nice he seemed. Very little mention of me. In fact, my father-in-law, who is a retired veterinary surgeon who lives in Newcastle with zero interest in martial arts and even less in cultural studies, even threatened to come all the way to Cardiff just to hear Professor Chan speak. Were it not for the fact that he's currently visiting his first grandson in London, new baby, there is a very real chance that he would be here with us now, glowing with the anticipation of listening to a talk on a subject he genuinely couldn't care less about, <laughs> solely because it's to be delivered by Professor Stephen Chan. So I know that there are many people in the audience today who not only feel the same way about Stephen Chan, but who also feel even more strongly about his topic, martial arts. Knowing this, it means that the more I talk, the more I'm basically just torturing you. So I'll frustrate you no more 
and hand over now with great pleasure to our first highly esteemed keynote, Professor Sensei Stephen Chan.
it was a disaster in many respects, although one of these hugely heroic disasters that even the communist regime acknowledges was necessary, desirable, someone had to do it, and Sun Yat-sen probably did it the best anyone could. But I remember stamps from that period, postage stamps, with huge denominations, because inflation was so rampant that you couldn't even buy a postage stamp, except that it had 20 zeros behind it. Uh, hyperinflation matched only by Robert Mugabe's Zimbabwe about 10 years ago. Uh, so it was a runaway economy, and it was a republic that refused to settle down and become a republic. Warlords rose up everywhere. If you were not a major warlord, then you were a minor warlord. If you were not a minor warlord, you were a brigand. You were a gang leader. The early part of the 20th century saw Chinese people going everywhere, not only to escape this, but also to make their fortunes and send money home. Many of them went to the gold rushes of the day, California, New Zealand, some went, including some of my ancestors. <coughs> they sent back enough money so that my parental or grandparental village was able to build four <coughs> watchtowers mounted with Browning machine guns. The whole security situation was so perilous that this was required to protect a relatively small village, which has now become part of metropolitan Canton or Guangdong. But it didn't mean that everybody could have armaments of a modern sort. So my grandmother was a swordswoman. And she led, as a very, very young woman, uh, platoons in the field with her sword. Uh, the legend was that one day she was strafed from the air by a fighter aircraft and that she saw the tracer falling all around her and she looked at her sword and she said to herself, modernity has come, threw the sword away and ran for her life and never picked it up again afterwards. But the family itself suffered for her involvement in the warlord era. Uh, her firstborn son was kidnapped by a rival warlord faction tortured to death, uh, his decimated and brutalized body was returned ceremoniously to uh, my grandmother. And it marked her, I think, for the rest of her life. So that my first stories at her knee, we were a refugee family in New Zealand by that point in time, were of the terrors of war and of the terrors of having to do martial arts. There was nothing romantic about it. But because of that in the family, my father was very, very much uh, Mantis, a stylist. Uh, and of course, you know what happens in terms of fathers and sons. At some point in time, father gets on your nerves just a little bit too much, and you want to beat up on dad. Uh, no way was I going to take martial arts tuition from my father. There was too much teenage rivalry going on at that point in time. So I put myself off to the meanest, roughest, toughest karate studio in town. This was, I'll try to put this politely, a karate dojo for ruffians, thugs, criminals, spikies, and truckies. Uh, and I enrolled in what was advertised as an experimental class. An experimental class meant that you did a lot of fighting, you had very, very little health and safety, and you kept very, very <coughs> engaging company. Uh, in other words, your problem wasn't getting on and off the floor, it was making sure you weren't mugged getting in and out of the dressing room. So I had 20 colleagues, uh, two white males, uh, my 
partner at the time. She was the only white female, so there were three white people. And the remainders were Maori and Polynesian bikies and truckies, as I said. They would come to the dojo in their leathers with the chains hanging down. And it was a wonderful company. It was the most superb karate dojo I've ever belonged to. And we just knocked seven bells out of one another for the duration of training session after training session. But it was a very interesting multicultural situation in more ways than one, not just the Maori and the Polynesian components of the student body, but because of the style being taught. It was a JKA original style, in other words, it originated with the JKA as it went off to Malaysia, where it became the MKA, the Malaysian Karate Association, purportedly teaching Shotokan uh, in the 1970s. By the time it reached New Zealand through the Malaysian teachers who had an influence on our own sensei, it had become a hybrid style with Shotokan kata, taekwondo kicks, and judo groundwork and throwing work because of the intervening influences of the Malaysian teachers recruited to the MKA. And I just took this as normal that you did Chinese weapons, that you did. Um, Korean kicks, and that you did a lot of throwing and rolling around, and you did something called kata, which was meant to be plausibly uniform around the world. So when I came to the United Kingdom uh, as a graduate student in the 1970s, and I made my way, as everyone did, to the star dojos in uh, London, uh, including to Mr. Anoida's JKA, Shotokan Dojo, my big surprise was how different Shotokan was in the United Kingdom compared with how I had thought I was experiencing it in New Zealand. And then, looking at it as it developed over the years, the Shotokan that is practiced now, even by those who claim still to be very, very true to the ethos of whichever faction of the JKA they are now following, because that organization is split into a very great number of different factions, the time periods would demarcate exactly when you got your black belt from which faction underneath which teacher. Uh, so there are so many variations now on what was claimed to be a uniform style, in some ways still the most uniform style on earth, but with a plenitude of subtle and sometimes not so subtle differences. Now, if all of this is meant to be representing an original way of doing karate, uh, and it's Factionated, it's divided, it's become a multiplicity unto itself. Is this possible anymore to regard martial arts as a uniform entity with a uniform history rather than having many, many strands of history, having many strands of creation and recreation as this developed over the years? The next part of my story is when I go off to Africa. Uh, again, it was an accident. I, I didn't plan to go off to Africa. <coughs> I was a young international civil servant at the time. I was sent off to Africa. Uh, this was for the birth of Zimbabwe. Um, it was a war-torn country. This was 1980. I'd been in charge of putting papers together and putting paper clips on them for the peace conference, the negotiations that had preceded the period of independence. This would be three months of bringing all the guerrillas and all the different armies in from the field. Everyone was hoping like crazy that it would all work and that they would behave themselves. And to make sure that they did, a bunch of 
repeatedly sort of lunatic people were sent off to keep an eye on the entire process. And I was meant to be one of them. I discovered afterwards because I was regarded as being so young, I was completely expendable. And so it didn't matter if I got myself shot. But what it did was to expose me to all kinds of other hybridities. Because I was Chinese, and I would meet officers from Robert Mugabe's guerrilla army in the field, they, seeing that I was Chinese, would pull chopsticks out of their webbing and say, ah, you're Chinese, we want to eat with you, and we're going to eat with you in the manner in which we were taught by your countrymen who came to help us in our hour of need. And they ate with chopsticks perfectly because Chinese military trainers had come out to help that particular guerrilla movement. There was a very, very brief moment in Africa where being Chinese could open doors for you anywhere. Uh, I would go to places like Kenya and go to the most desperate parts of Nairobi where you're not meant to go and guarantee to my host that I would walk down that street in the dead of night and come back completely unscathed because I was Chinese. I had long hair, I looked like a refugee from a Kung Fu movie. There's not going to be any problems. Uh, and indeed, it happened just like that. But all of this also had all kinds of unintended consequences because you're there, you have an image, it becomes an image problem. Uh, after some adventures, I am told by my employers that I'm being posted to Zambia. You know, that's it. You're going there. You're not going to be working from London anymore, taking these glamorous trips. You're going to be on the continent, working out of Lusaka, which is also the headquarters of a number of guerrilla factions, in exile, fighting for liberation. The South African AMC was exiled to Lusaka, Zambia, for instance. Uh, but it meant that I was going to an unknown territory. And one night, I was walking the university campus. My offices were right next door to the campus. So one evening, I'm walking across the campus. And I'm getting tired and thinking I should turn around. And in the distance, there is this monolithic building, which can only be a sports hall. So I say to myself, I'll walk as far as the sports hall, then turn back and go back to my office. And of course, the closer you get to the sports hall, the more you hear what's going on inside. And I began hearing Kiai. Um, karate shouting from inside the sports hall. So I go inside the sports hall, this is a fatal mistake, and I see that there is a karate group there, uh, not dressed in any great uniform uh, manner, uh, pretty much homemade uniforms and belts of one description or another, being led by a brown belt. And practicing a form of Shotokan, which I had last seen 15 years ago, because that's the last time they had, had any tuition. And they had faithfully remembered exactly what they had been taught and was already antiquated. So I waited until the end of the session. I went up to the brown belt and said, who's your teacher? And he said, we don't have a teacher. And this is one of those moments when you should have run a mile. And uh, instead I said, well, um, I could possibly help you. And that began a relationship with African karate development, which has lasted through to this day. Because from that one dojo in the University of Zambia, uh, all of uh, the various offshoots that have happened since then, not only in universities, but in slum areas in particular, in different African cities, has led to a vast martial arts, let us call it a republic, because it's not run along traditional hierarchical lines. A vast republic, a people's republic, of independent teachers who are bound together by a similar ethos but all of whom have come through the original training methods that I was seeking to introduce at that point in time in 1980. 
where did those teaching methods come from? Well, I made them up. So I made them up because I had studied not only at a Neuter's Dojo in London, I'd gone to Steve Morris's Godju Dojo in London. That was uh, like a home away from home because you just got beat up at Steve Morris's Dojo. Uh, pretty much every single famous outfit in London I, I trained with at one point in time or another. And that's probably the reason why I'm so crippled today. But what it meant was that you got so many different takes on how this should be done. Uh, that you actually were no longer satisfied with any claim whatsoever that there could be a straight line descendant of an original faith, as it were. You lose your sense of sectarianness, which pervades so much of the martial arts. Oh, my teacher is the only true follower of the only true way of the only true lineage of the only true hierarchy, etc., etc. And after a while, you understand that that's simply not true. Or if it pretends to be true, it's a pretense. If they truly and utterly have faith in the pretense, then they're doing so for reasons which are meaningful for the persons who are subscribing to that belief, either because they want to make money out of it or because they simply don't have a questioning attitude to life. They need a faith. It can become very, very religious, as I said, and some people need to approach it like that. What I've tried to do is to approach it not like that and to see it in all its diversity. So the third phase of the story is when I finally get myself to Japan. And I want to go to Japan. Uh, I want to be at the home of all of this. I want to be where it all began. I'm going to train on this trip uh, in both Tokyo. And I'm going to take myself off to Okinawa, a small island, set of islands to the southern part of Japan, which is meant to be the birthplace of modern karate before it moved to metropolitan Japan. Uh, early in Tokyo, uh, I was hosted by a most unorthodox uh, karate instructor. He was an 8,000 of full contact style, which was an offshoot of the Kokushinkai. Uh, he had his own petrol station and a quite capacious house next to the petrol station and a quite capacious dojo next to the house. And I'm suddenly thinking, all this real estate in Tokyo doesn't come easy. You're lucky to have a tiny little apartment in metropolitan uh, Tokyo. And of course, you soon start to realize that uh, this gentleman is associated with elements in society that you would not normally call respectable. <laughs> so I thought this was wonderful. It was a dojo which specialized in two things or three things, actually. Uh, weapons work was one of them. Uh, and I asked, you know, where did you get your weapons kata from? And he said, ah, my teacher just made these up. Uh, there's nothing traditional about it, but you know, I'll teach you them if you like. Uh, it was a dojo noted as an offshoot of the Kokushinkai for full contact fighting. So again, you got your bruises. And there was a dojo that was noted for breaking. Uh, in an alleyway outside the dojo, there were just bucket after bucket full of bottles and river stones. And you spent all morning breaking these things and hoping like crazy that your hand would still be in one piece at the end of the day. And so I said one day, Sensei, why are we doing so much breaking? And he said, well, it's because that's what I'm good at. <laughs> <laughs> so we did breaking. And traditions and styles form around this. But before I go off to Okinawa, he makes a telephone call to the sensei who's going to be awaiting me in Okinawa. 
It turns out that he can speak the local Okinawan dialect by virtue of having married an Okinawan woman. Gives a report to the sensei whom I'd met before at that international clinic saying Chan-san is coming. I've been watching him all the time that he's been living here uh, with me. And words to the effect of he's a pretty weak specimen of humanity, but he's quite sort of uh, enthusiastic about all of this. <laughs> so please treat him as well as you possibly can. Um, uh, those words were not well received. But afterwards, <laughs> he took me around this dojo. Uh, my first sensei in Japan, in Tokyo, showed me the certificates, which of course I had become greatly familiar with. And he said, Chan-san, after you come back from Okinawa, I know that you're going to Okinawa to sit for God Al exam, for fifth Al exam. That's fine, I think you're going to get it. And if you want to do this internationally, if you want to help your students uh, in Africa, uh, come back and I will show you how you can get the credentials uh, to do this. And I said, but I'm going to have a fifth time if I'm successful. Uh, you know, what are you going to tell me? And he said, look, Chan San, this diploma, this one real? This one real? Uh, I buy that one. Uh. <laughs> I buy that one. Uh, I am very respected sensei. I have all the credentials. I have all the certificates. Um, you want certificates? You're going to have a legitimate fifth dan if you're lucky and successful in Okinawa. Uh, why not be an eighth dan? Uh, why not have many, many students who want to come to an eighth dan teacher? And I said, well, Sensei, this is really, really, really kind of you. I won't forget this lesson. And indeed, I, I've not forgotten it. Uh, but I've not yet bought uh, an eighth down. But the point being that it conveyed to me that in the constant recreation of the martial arts is the constant recreation of legitimacy. And the constant recreation of legitimacy comes through various organizations that may not be quite as strict in terms of licensing and delivering credentials that you might normally think. We normally think about American degree mills or downgrade mills, but these also exist, for want of another word, as down awarding mills in Japan as well. You put down your money, you get a beautiful certificate, it probably belongs to a very ancient organization, or one that goes back at least a few decades, and you've got business credentials. Nobody can read the script, no one can read the kanji, nobody can read the classical Chinese lettering embedded in the certificate, it can certify you to be whatever you want to be. You can start your own style. And in starting your own style again, you're beginning to recreate on the basis of your experience and of your learning exactly what it is that you think is valuable about the martial arts, but which may not belong to any kind of tradition at all. Now, Okinawa is meant to be the birthplace of the martial arts. Kishin Funakoshi, Kenwa Mabuni, two great teachers from Okinawa, were meant to have come out to mainland Japan uh, in the 1920s. And they were meant to have established karate in Japan itself, as indeed they did. What many people don't ask is what happened when they actually arrived from this small island province and took up residence in metropolitan Japan, what influence their patrons had on them, what influence the other martial artists with whom they were forced to forge links and alliances had on them, what kinds of influences crept into their teaching. We always think about what kind of influences they had on metropolitan Japanese 
martial arts, what kind of social hierarchies they entered, what kinds of compromises they had to make. All of these things are part of a forgotten or a neglected era of martial arts development, a certain political transition point which we politely brush underneath the carpet in exactly the same way as we would not pay any attention to exactly where that downgrade certificate came from. It looks pretty, uh, we've got an official history, let's not go into that. But I would say from my discussions with Japanese censors that an awful lot of political horse trading goes on now. And when they talk about how they grew up, an awful lot of political horse trading went on during their formations. And so I'm just assuming that their forebears went through something not dissimilar. Also, when you look at the sociology of all of this, there's something very, very vexed, particularly when we in the West try to impute a certain classical Budo ethos to particularly karate. And I think back to my host in Tokyo, who uh, has, let us say, irregular contacts, which is a way of saying Yakuza uh, contacts. And then you think, but this has got nothing to do with a samurai ethos and a samurai tradition. In fact, very much in contradistinction to the samurai ethos. And which samurai ethos are you looking at anyway? Are you looking at the ritualized, artificialized, and carefully monitored and policed ethos that grew up in the shogunate, for instance, where a huge number of elaborate rituals and forms of politesse were invented to keep the samurai class under control, which had nothing to do with their history, but everything to do with the political needs of the shogunate and the needs for social stability and peace within the shogunate. Give these guys something to do. They can't go around cutting people to death anymore. Let's make them do kata so they can wave their swords in empty air. This affected martial art after martial art, so everything became reified into a series of rituals, which then asks a certain question, uh, which we sometimes try not to ask. Uh, what was the purpose, for instance, of this reification, of this ritualization? Uh, what about all of these ancient things that we practice, which we think we practice, which we think are ancient, called kata? Uh, if they were developed simply as a reification, as a form of, uh, as it were, abstraction of the true violence of the original martial arts, something to keep them safe, are we actually celebrating a martial tradition or are we celebrating a tradition of government that had to regulate people who had a martial background and a martial history to make sure that the turbulent times of ancient Japan did not return in much the same way as the Chinese government has regulated, reified, and made abstract these beautiful forms of wushu or kung fu uh, so that the era of turbulence that I spoke about, which involved my grandmother, would not return. Everybody had a martial arts style in my grandmother's day, and they used it to very great and very, very deadly effect. Modern society does not want that to happen. But I reach Okinawa, ladies and gentlemen, and I'm treated very, very well by my uh, teacher. Uh, the fifth down test is a very, very simple one. I don't have to do anything but get up, uh, literally. Uh, but uh, what I mean by that is the test would be if we throw Chan San to the ground quite violently 200 times, will he still get up at the end of 200 takedowns and throwdowns to the floor? an unpadded floor made out of extremely hard Okinawan wood. Uh, and yes, uh, I was very, very 
determined I would keep getting up. Uh, and of course, one of the things you do when you're being slammed to the floor again and again is you start counting. This has got to come to an end. Surely they're not thinking about 1,000 slam downs. Uh, you know, it was only 200, but that took a fair amount of time. And so at the end of all of that, they simply say, hmm, we go out for a party tonight. Uh, and the uh, degree was awarded at the end of that uh, party. But what it meant was that at that level, and at parties of that sort, uh, you were allowed to start talking in a slightly more uninhibited way than previously. You get a license to this you to a certain level in hierarchy. Now again, talked to Sensei in pretty broken English uh, about his own experiences in growing up in Okinawa. And this was repeated. This conversation went on and on and visit after visit. In the end, I made about 10 visits to Okinawa over the years. Uh, and while Sensei was still alive, kept going back to him and training at his dojo as well as at other dojos. And I remember on one particular occasion, uh, we went to Shuri Castle. This has now become a tourist set-piece excursion. You can fly in from Tokyo take the monorail from the airport to the castle, look around the castle, take the monorail back to the airport, and be back in Tokyo later on uh, that evening. Uh, nothing to do with the people of Okinawa, nothing to do with the culture of Okinawa. You're looking at a castle that has been rebuilt because it was destroyed by US naval bombardment during World War II and the Great Battle for Okinawa. And all of the great archives that were kept at the castle were also destroyed, including all written records, if they had ever existed, of Okinawan martial arts that had been kept in Okinawa. So you had two things. You had a fabrication that called itself the authentic castle as rebuilt, including all of the furniture, including all of the plaques, including the plaque gifted by the Chinese emperor to the Okinawan king. He was a vassal king, but it was very, very polite, gigantic wooden plaque that hung over the throne. And the king's name, the dynasty name, was Shou. And the name of the school that I was attending, Sensei's school, was Sei, Sei Tokan. And wandering around the throne room with Sensei one day, I looked up and I said, Sure, but Sensei, that's written with the same character as Sei. And he looked at me as if I'd been completely dumb. It had taken me five visits to come and work that out. He says, yes, and now you know. Uh, this is to preserve Okinawan culture against the influence of Japanese culture. Sei is written with the same character as Sho. Sho was the last Okinawan dynasty, but we regard it as something independent of the mainland Japanese rule over us. This is our last claim to independence. So I say to myself, so the Japanese claim that karate came from Okinawa is countermanded by an Okinawan insistence that the last thing they want to be is Japanese. Uh, so you have an interesting contradiction, a contradiction, a tension built into the relationship which is meant to depict the birth of karate. You have something that's fraught with a nationalism now expresses a cultural nationalism of which karate is a part in Okinawa. 
and something which has been super developed along modern athletic competition, almost industrial lines in mainland Japan. You look at Shotokan and the way it's developed, it's part of the Japanese post-war industrial miracle. Clean lines, engineering movements, everything works off a piston system. Everything works off a set of body mechanics, which is very, very much the kind of mechanics that you would wish to build machines with. It's brutal, it's efficient, it's beautiful, and it's got nothing to do with how it started in Okinawa, which is still a folk custom, a folk following, something which is folkloric in terms of its history, which then, of course, asks another question, or another set of questions. If it's folkloric, if it's based on records that are lost because they were destroyed in the American naval bombardment of Okinawa, if there's nothing left but stories of the old senseis, how can you trust the stories? Uh, now, at the institution where I work now, the School of Oriental and African Studies, we have a great number of experts in oral history. There are a great number of methodologies by which oral histories are measured. So that what is said to be a history which goes back X number of years, for instance, is almost never that long. Uh, there are ways of ascertaining what might be a true length of history as against what is claimed to be a longer length of history. In other words, there's a whole body of theory to do with the truncation of time in the oral retelling, the oral narratives of time. In reality, it's a stretch out of something which took place in a much more compressed period of actual calendar time <coughs> that we are able to measure. So the claims of antiquity have to be called into question in the first instance. The reliability of the narrator, certainly in the absence of written records. And then going from dojo to dojo in Okinawa and talking to different teachers, because now I've become something of a fixture on the scene. This strange Chinese person with long hair keeps showing up, and he's completely inept, but let's forgive him. You know, he seems to be someone who's genuinely interested in our culture, and after all, he's not actually Japanese, is he? Uh, he's <laughs> Chinese. Uh, so, you know, he's okay, we can talk to him, and he uses chopsticks like an Okinawan uh, rather than uh, like a Japanese mainlander, so he must be okay, and he's good for a drink or two, particularly when he's paying for them. <laughs> but then every single sensei tells you a different story about the origin of their dojo, about the origin of the same style, about the same cultural nationalism as being affiliated to the Sho dynasty, and the whole, as it were, where is the meat that is the reliable meat in the sandwich keeps plaguing you again and again. So different teachers I've trained with, each claiming a certain legacy. There was a very, very fine weapons teacher called Sensei Odo with whom I used to train. He taught uh, weapons, but he also did the Shodron Kata, or at least his version of them. Many of you will know a kata called Basai. Uh, there's Basai Dai, there's Basai Shou, there's variations of them. Uh, last count, I had 32 versions of Basai. But Sensei Odo's version was the strangest that I'd ever encountered. He used to do it to music, uh, to YMCA by the village people. Uh, so he had a very, very strange sense of humor. Uh, but I noticed and simply asked him, but Sensei, in most versions of Pasai, there are many sharp turns, you know, facing different directions. In your version of Pasai, you never turn around, you're always facing the front. And he just said, chan -san. 
one day I'm practicing this kata, I forget where the turns are. So I just think this is stupid to have to keep turning. Why can't I just have a version of Pasai without having to turn around all the time? I'm old now, I get dizzy. So I make up this version where I never have to turn around. And I say, and Sensei, so now you teach this version to your students. He says, yes, yes, I teach this version to my students. Uh, and I said, Sensei, do you tell them it's ancient and true? He says, of course, they're American <laughs> students. <laughs> 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 they will believe. You know, they'll go back and this will become a famous traditional way of doing Pasai. Uh, so I said, Sensei, you're being very, very cynical. And he said, yes, uh, Chan Sad, I know I'm being very, very cynical. But our culture is changing. It's never going to be the same again. Uh, we simply recognize this. If karate doesn't change, particularly in a globalized setting, it's just going to become part of Okinawa, the museum. And we don't even know the reality of what should be in this museum because all of our records have been destroyed. You only have my stories. I only have the stories of my teachers. And I said, well, Sensei, I'm going to try something different. So, okay, you take as true that the records have been destroyed by the naval bombardment. You take it as true that most of the old senseis were illiterate, so they couldn't write down what it is that they believed, what it is that they were teaching not even in village repositories. There were no such things as village libraries in any case. But then you think to yourself, and I'm amazed that this thought doesn't occur to more people, but that actually Okinawa was only one part of an archipelago of islands that stretched for a very great distance in uh, the South China Seas. Uh, there's Taiwan, for instance. Uh, even a fisherman without navigation equipment can get from Okinawa to Taiwan, never mind people who are maritime uh, experts uh, who can sail larger craft on a fishing boat. Uh, and you know, there must be something in Taiwan that wasn't destroyed. So I take myself off to Taiwan, and I've been there several times now. Uh, it's always very, very good whenever you need to do a bit of martial research to spring yourself a visiting professorship uh, to Taiwanese University to teach international relations. <laughs> and as soon as you've given your lectures, you hive yourself off to some obscure sort of a museum or archive somewhere to see uh, what your research will give to you. And of course, what happened is that it doesn't matter to an extent what was destroyed in Okinawa because there are versions of history affecting the entire archipelago, all the different islands, that are in repositories in a place like Taiwan that was not destroyed. And in fact, these repositories, these libraries have been carefully curated and preserved. Of course, they would give a particular version of history. Taiwan was colonized by the Japanese at one point in time. Uh, they treated the Taiwanese very, very well. There were uh, a whole series of different generations of Chinese diasporas that settled in Taiwan. And of course, the nationalist regime that had to flee the communist triumph in 1949 became the government uh, in Taiwan. And that became part of our whole Cold War a legacy that most of us grew up with and thankfully grew out of as the Cold War came to an end. But one of the key things that struck me looking in Taiwan was all of this insistence on the role of pirate fleets. Uh, the seas in this part of the world were replete with 
warships, with fleets of warships that did not belong to any legitimate government. They were pirates, but they were very, very well organized pirates. Sometimes they set up kingdoms on land. Uh, one of these kingdoms is in Okinawa, uh, and it was centered on an area called Nakajin Castle. It's still, the ruins are still there. It was a very, very strange pirate kingdom uh, from about the 17th century. Uh, it held sway over a very short time, only about 50 years, but about one-third of Okinawa. And it was a republican type of kingdom. There was a leader, but everybody was equal if they could bear arms. If you were a woman and you wanted to fight, you had the same rights as a man. And so the whole idea of this kind of equality in the pirate world built into some kind of governmental system over quite a small area, but which would have seemed quite large at the time. And these people having access to transport across the seas, because they had pirate fleets, what were their contacts with other islands in the archipelago? What were their contacts with mainland Japan? What were their contacts with mainland China? And of course, what happened was that both the Japanese uh, emperors and the Chinese emperors would buy the services of the pirates for the simple reason that a bunch of islands is not worth fighting for with your own men and with your own ships. They were much too valuable. You know, if we could have a fight with Japan, let's do it. Uh, but these islands? No, let's hire the pirate fleets to do that for us. So a very great deal of the diplomatic rivalry between the two the Japanese and the Chinese were conducted by proxies, by what we would today call mercenaries. Very well-equipped mercenaries, you would get rank, the Chinese would give you ranks, uh, you'd be an admiral. In the paintings that survived, this guy's wearing a Chinese admiral's uniform, he's got all the paraphernalia. These people were just as fussy as our admirals. You'd have just the amount of gold braid on their sleeves, and you know, it was very, very important in any kind of culture. It's a sign of elevation. But what seems to be the case is that a very great deal of what we take to be Okinawan martial arts does indeed have a Chinese ancestry, but which is probably a Chinese ancestry transmuted through criminal elements, maritime criminal elements. Was this the same as a Chinese court, aristocratic martial arts? Or was it a form of martial arts which changed in the environment and the culture of the pirate kingdoms and the pirate fleets? That did a lot of traffic, binding all of these different parts of Asia together. That kind of thing we've never really touched upon. In terms of when it all became global, the Dutch went there, the Portuguese went there, there were firefights between the, the navies of these great powers at the time, and the pirate navies. The museums are full of the triumphs of the Chinese pirates and their fleets over those of the invading colonial powers. All of this is celebrated, whether or not it's actually true history or not, because, of course, finally, there was much purchase on the part of certain colonial powers in that part of the world. This whole melange speaks of a globalization of culture and cultural influences, certainly regional miscegenation, and certainly much sharing of martial arts traditions, real ones, authentic ones, if you can call them that, bastardized ones, adapted ones, invented ones, that go back for a very, very long time, and which constantly mutate. So that the history of all of this is not something that you can see anymore as linear. There's no genealogy.
There's that. It's happened since then. It happens in modern days. My family is an example of that. Grandmother, who taught you the sword? Uh, grandson, I picked it up here and there. And then I had to use it. So certain things were just invented in struggle. You know, so you don't come from a tradition. You don't come from a set school. Ah, there's some movements from certain schools in it, but they would never work on the battlefield. So we just made it up. Uh, if I were a teacher, I would teach it the way that I think works. And that would be a new tradition. That would be a new style. That would be a new school of swordsmanship. It would have adherence. Two generations down the line, those adherents or their descendants would say, we swear, we swear on our heart that this is the classical way of doing things. So ladies and gentlemen, what I wanted to say was, don't trust the so-called classical ways of doing things. Question them. But at the same time, I think we should glory in how these things are changing. And I think they're changing for the better, not in a linear way. Some things change in a circular fashion. There's a whole reinvigoration now of interest in the bunkai, or the application or the interpretation of Carter movements. So these things were very, very stylized and now given some kind of interpretation. These are modern interpretations. They try to look at what might be the underlying martial arts principle behind those movements. And sometimes they may be. Other times they are drawn from other martial arts disciplines. A very great deal of the interpretations now given to movements that are said to be locking movements uh, probably derive from mixed martial arts. And that's a very, very modern rendition of uh, how to approach martial arts. Roots in Brazilian jiu-jitsu, roots in turn to judo, roots in turn to earlier forms of Japanese jiu-jitsu, roots in turn to various criminal fraternities in an older Japan. All mixed together, all in a circular manner, brought back into the mix. Modern choreographies, you go to modern international kata competitions now, a team of three get up, they do beautiful synchronized movements, it's sort of like a dance, it's wonderful, it's athletic, it's artistic, uh, they train like dancers, but afterwards those who are in the finals have got to give an exhibition as to the meaning of the movements that they were uh, practicing in the competition. And of course, what happens is that in order to attract high marks from the judges, they make their interpretation for competition purposes as flamboyant as possible. Who would ever have thought there were so many spinning and flying kicks in one kata? So this kind of thing, again, changes our approach to how we would interpret certain movements in kata. Whether we think we're immune to modern flash dancing or not, you can bet your bottom dollar when we look at a kata and its interpretation, we are going to be subconsciously inflected and acted upon by what the choreographers have done for competition purposes. We're going to say, look, this interpretation is possible, but that's because we've been to a, an Inabanathi class, who's been to a mixed martial arts class, who's been to a jiu-jitsu class, and all of this thing gets brought in a very eclectic way into a mix that we try to say is classical, but which in fact is simply a miscegenated mixture of things with some classical elements and a very, very great deal of perhaps modern elements. I want to celebrate all of this. I want to celebrate the fact that what we're looking at here is in fact a genuine cultural studies. Because everything I've tried to describe to you comes within the realm of what we would call
cultural studies. It's not just something which was developed for purposes of war and combat. It's something which has developed over the years to express certain needs, certain ways of expressing ourselves in certain cultural environments in different parts of the world that then mixed together in various forms of globalized clashing. Japanese pirates, Japanese mainlanders, Chinese, Portuguese, whatever, whatever, Okinawan islanders, their relationships with the Japanese mainland, with the Chinese court, what traders who were not pirates but legitimate businessmen brought back, uh, the uh, castle empires, or you call them little empires in Okinawa, which were very, very famous for their international trade. They boast of having been, as it were, well received in Osaka and Kyoto, uh, part of the great trading nation um, in cities of uh, the ancient days. What did those traders, those businessmen, bring back with them? So ladies and gentlemen, what I wanted to say, starting with my own history, how it went from New Zealand, how it went to Africa, how it fetched up in Japan, Okinawa, and Taiwan, is that I wanted to represent that as a microcosm of a process which continues, which has always continued, which will always continue. And as part of a fascinating study, which takes us away, and I think this is the key message, ladies and gentlemen, it's going to be a discipline because it's not going to be a faith anymore. Let's take the faith and the belief out of this. Let's question it and gain value from our interrogation of something which we regard as dynamic. Thank you very much, ladies and gentlemen.